Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Tim Hayden, and I'll be your host. Our guest today is the brilliant Ellen Crawford. Ellen is an accomplished actress who has been in many TV shows and movies, some like Days of Our Lives, Boomers, Desperate Housewives, but she is best known for her role as nurse Lydia Wright on the hit TV show ER. Let's welcome Ellen to the show. Hello, Ellen. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. Uh, I'm so happy that you're here. Oh, I really am. Nice to get to know you. Well, uh, first, I would like to congratulate you on or wish you a happy anniversary. You just celebrated 45 years Four, with your 40, husband. Well, 40 years married. We've been together sort of 45, but 40 years on October 18th. So That's still incredible. I mean, yeah, and, and your husband is also your co-star on ER. Yes, uh, Mike Genevieve. 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 Sorry, I'm not. No, it's okay. Everybody pronounces it a different way. If you're Italian, it's Genovese. So you know, it's anybody ah. guess what it's going to be. So, but that's how he says it, Genevieve. <laughs> well, let's start at the beginning. About what age were you when you decided acting was what you wanted to do? Well, uh, that's Michael coughing in the background, my very husband. Um, uh, I actually, it wasn't until fourth grade because when I was three, I wanted to be a ballerina. So I wanted to be a dancer until fourth grade when I wanted to be an actress. So I was one of those very odd children that kind of knew early that I wanted to be a performer. And I have no idea why, except that when I was three, I saw I saw ballerinas on TV and I told my mother I wanted to learn to dance. So I started dancing at three. And then in fourth grade, I, I, I took some drama lessons from a wonderful woman um, in uh, Bloomington, Illinois, uh, Aurelia McKay. And Aurelia she McKay. gave children. Um, so, yeah. And she was quite a wonderful lady. And she, she taught children. We had like a little acting company together and, and, um, and had a wonderful time. And that's when I thought, oh, I like this acting thing. And then when I hit puberty, I knew I couldn't be a ballerina because I was a very skinny little kid, but then my legs were short and I uh, filled out, shall we say, uh, in a way that ballerinas aren't supposed to. And, and I realized, oh yeah, I can dance in musicals, but I'm, I don't really have a ballerina body. And I like the singing and acting thing and I can kind of dance also, so. So that's yeah. how that happened. But I was being, never, a baller, being a ballerina is tough on your feet. I mean, literally, I mean. Being was, a ballerina is tough on everything. Being a dancer, um, I mean, people don't think about how, first of all, it's incredibly athletic. Um, and um, people don't realize the wear and tear on the body that, uh, and I still, I you really do have the, um, mindset of it's okay work through the pain that it's kind of like sports in that way you work through the pain 
which means why some of your most incredible, for example, I, there was a, a teacher at a studio I was studying with uh, a few years ago who was a fantastic Fosse dancer walking with a cane because you've asked your body to do these unbelievable things that bodies aren't really supposed to do, but that thrill us, that achieve incredible heights of artistry. Um, but you do pay the price physically. And I actually, I actually still have, um, and I didn't realize it until I was like 30 that I had a whiplash injury and my chiropractor said, when was your automobile accident? And I said, I don't really remember one where my neck hurt, but let me ask you, if you whipped your head back and forth eight times a week in a show every night, uh, could you give yourself whiplash? And he said, uh, yeah. So I realized I gave myself whiplash doing choreography. And, wow. you know, I'm still treating that now, but, um, but it's a, it, it is um, a lesson to any of you young dancers out there do try to be careful because you will be living with it. I know you're being demanded to do things, but, but be mindful of your uh, and careful. So. It's just the things we got to sacrifice for our craft. You graduated from Carnegie Mellon. Mellon University of I Fine did. Arts in 1975. Is that about when you started venturing out other than dancing? No, actually, and this is a really strange story. When um, I was fortunate enough, I loved where I grew up because I grew up in normal Illinois. I know people laugh, normal really is that the name of the town, but um, Illinois State University used to be Illinois State Normal University because it was a teacher's college, which was considered a normal college, I guess, because you're getting your students up to a norm. I don't know. But at any rate, um, when they moved there, uh, Bloomington Normal, though it's in the, their twin cities in the middle of cornfields and, and soybean fields, uh, had two universities there, which gave us the benefit, me the benefit of, of all of those uh, cultural uh, and educational benefits of both universities. So, um, and I, and really wonderful public schools. I went to public school through junior high, but then I went to university high school, Illinois State University's high school. And I had a, um, a fantastic a teacher there uh, by the name of Lawrence E. Connolly, who really was extraordinary in the way he got all kinds of kids involved in the arts, in, in drama, speech and drama, and um, and he and encouraging people who maybe were kind of outside in the norm. You know, they were kind of maybe the the kids who um, came from ISSCS, who were like um, basically an orphanage, but you know, who were sometimes uh, felt apart and and brought them in, and so made a community of all of us in a really special way, making art. And many of those people have gone on. One of my, one of my close friends uh, from there was a European opera star, uh, another, uh, you know, another friend uh, that was Leslie Manring, she's still around. Um, and uh, uh, Pat Brimer um, was Sherry Lewis's master puppeteer. Um, he was the gopher in Caddyshack, you know, so he had, these people that really um, established careers in in, uh, in the performing arts, just really, I think, because of in, his influence, and and he introduced to to a broad, broad uh, 
um, theater uh, background as well, because he did everything from Tennessee Williams to Theater of the Absurd to Maxwell Anderson to, I mean, he did everything. And musicals, you know, I got to play Carrie Pipperidge and Carousel and, and I got to uh, do Guys and Dolls and be Adelaide, you know, wonderful things like that. But he was one of those very special teachers. So working, even as a child, I told you about Mrs. McKay when I was doing that. Also, I did children's theater at both universities when they needed a kid or they had a special program for children. I did all of that in, in elementary school, in junior high. Then in high school, I got to expand even more through this teacher's guidance. I had a wonderful dance teacher named Jane Plum, who, who uh, really pushed me towards a professional career in a very healthy way. My parents were very supportive. Um, and so I was acting all that time, but not professionally. Now I did, I know I'm like motor mouth, right? Sorry. <laughs> no, no, by all means. I'm enjoying. But I uh, I did Apprentice when I was 16 at a at a Summerstock Theater, the Little Theater on the Square, Gaius Little's Little Theater on the Square in Sullivan, Illinois. And, and uh, you know, mostly you're, you're cleaning toilets and washing flats <laughs> to learn how to be an actor. <laughs> but uh, I did uh, I did perform some, learned how to run a light board, did all those things, was a properties mistress, uh, for life with father. I mean, at the age of 16, it was a lot of responsibility, but I learned a lot and I learned a lot. You learn a lot. And I've, I've done this throughout my career, especially when I was younger, speaking to those older people. I remember in that company was John Kelso out here. When I first came out here, it was Parley Bear. People have been in the industry or the business for a very long time and you can learn from them. Um, and, uh, so I, I was prepared. I knew I wanted a professional career. Um, so when I graduated from high school, it was clear what my path was um, uh, for me, what I loved and what I wanted. And I got the first, I got the first theater scholarship to Illinois State University, um, which was great, except that I decided that I should know what a cattle call is like. So I saw that we heard about, they were doing auditions for the original Chicago company of hair. I was still in high school when they, when it was on, when it opened up Broadway, but, um, and certainly when it opened off Broadway, but, uh, but I went up and 3,500 people stood around a line in Chicago and all that we got was appointments. I mean, we thought we'd be singing, but we weren't. We got appointments to come back. That's a two-hour drive each way to Chicago. But I was like, well, it's a good experience. And I really expected them to just go, you, 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 no, goodbye. You know, and I was ready for that experience. Um, so I went up and I had auditioned and they called me back and I couldn't believe it. So another trip to Chicago. And and the strange thing about it was, although, you know, I think probably I was interested in socio-political issues and things like that. I, you know, I, for my uh, last audition, for example, for my uh, final audition, I was wearing this really nice um, crepe kind of beige pantsuit and I had set my hair and, and the lake air in Chicago hit my hair and it frizzed and they were like, oh, you're perfect, right? So, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess they liked the way I sang too, uh, but, um, 
but it was very funny because I was very, I was kind of like Bambi, you know, I, I, in that way, coming from normal Illinois at the age of 18. And, and I didn't even drink beer in high school. So I was a very, you know, I had friends. I didn't even date that. <laughs> so, so I, I, I came from, uh, you wouldn't say I was a wild girl. Let me put it that way. But I became sort of everybody's little sister in that company. And they were very, very lovely with me. And um, so I, my parents said, well, you know, it's a great chance because it was in the biggest theater in Chicago at the Schubert, what's now called something else, I forget. And uh, where I had gone as a little girl with my grandmother and mother, uh, when I was a little girl, there was a group of women um, from the church or something that would get on a bus and go up to Chicago for the day and look at the Christmas windows and see whatever it was at the Schubert Theater. So it was like Florence Henderson and Sound of Music. It was, it was Carol Channing and Hello, Dolly. And we would go up and see the show and it was a thrill. And I remember my mother saying, someday I'm going to see you up on that stage. And I was like, oh, no. But in fact, that's where I had my first first professional job on a production contract, which was a big deal. And so I joined Actors' Equity at 18. At that time, my first union, God bless unions, thank you for your pensions. Um, and, uh, and I was off and running, but that meant I had to turn down the scholarship to Illinois State, at least for that year. Ah. And um, it may, I think it may have actually gone to, to Judith Ivy. I'm not sure. <laughs> who certainly became a big star and uh, she's fantastic and a lovely, lovely, wonderful person. Um, but uh, I then, when I came back to school, actually, okay, I'm sorry, I'm telling you my whole life story, but- Tell us, tell I, us. I'll try to make it quicker. No, no, tell us everything in detail. I love it. <laughs> Um, I decided that it, everybody was a backpacking teenager in those days in Europe. So after a year and I had made money and saved some money, I decided even though I was still having fun, it would be a good time to, to quit and put my backpack on and go around Europe. So I did that for four months. And then I got, I, they requested me to come back and do uh, the national tour of hair. So um, I made arrangements to come back and that particular one was canceled for a while, but then they came through my home. This is so weird. Uh, they, they wanted me to start out in Washington, DC, but that one was postponed. That was Jupiter tour. There was Venus, Jupiter and uh, Mercury, three tours. And uh, so I came back home anyway, which is good because uh, uh, as it happened, my father unexpectedly passed away not long after that. So I got to spend some time at home with my family. Uh, you know, you really don't expect that to happen. You think right. I'm young, my parents are going to be around forever, but let that be a lesson to everybody. Treasure and cherish your time with your family and your friends. You never know. That's more important than anything. So I was very blessed in that way. And then Weirdly, one of the Venus tour came through my hometown because it's a university town and I left with them uh, on tour. Um, and then uh, on the national tour, I played uh, the, I was cast in the role of Jeannie. Um, and I did that for uh, a time and um, 
we were the lucky tour, the other tour and nothing. I'm from the Midwest. I love all those towns, but they were playing, you know, Detroit and Pittsburgh and, and, you know, um, we were playing LA and Santa Barbara and Hawaii and Alaska. And uh, that was new territory for me that I hadn't seen. And that was exciting to be doing that West coast tour. Um, but then what happened is that um, I did want to go back to college. And already when I first came back, even before I left with the national tour, I started looking at where whether I was going to go to Illinois State at home or if I was going to go somewhere else. And I decided I wanted to go to a Bachelor of Fine Arts college. I thought that'd be good and maybe somewhere besides my hometown. Um, so I found Carnegie Mellon and I auditioned for them. They're the only school I auditioned for. A lot of other people were auditioning for, for Juilliard and CalArts, but I just auditioned for the one thing. And um, that was, so, and that was actually after I'd been touring for a while and uh, I was accepted, um, which was nice. And so then I left the tour and went to my freshman year of, um, of uh, Carnegie Mellon and <laughs> miraculously, I really was leaving, leading a blessed life in those days. They called me just as my freshman year was ending and said, uh, your replacement just left. Do you want to come back to the tour? And I said, well, I've got finals. And they said, it's okay. We'll hold the role for you. So my summer job was the national tour of hair again, <laughs> wonderful places. And I, in those days, Carnegie Mellon, it's, I think they do it differently now, but they would like, they would like chop your, your class in half. So you didn't even know if you're going to have a sophomore year. Um, as it happened, I did. Uh, so I, my summer job was that. So I actually worked professionally in between every year at Carnegie Mellon. I earned my money for the next year. Um, and I did, they were very, I also got a nice scholarship there because I had just lost my dad and, and they had given me, a, anyway, they were very generous to me, Carnegie Mellon. Um, and, um, but, but I, um, you know, yeah, I would work as an actor to earn money, to learn how to work as an actor. So it was a fun situation. Well, you, had, you had to eat Mike somewhere in there, didn't you? Actually, I met him between my junior and senior year. Oh, and a footnote to that was, had I gone back to Illinois State, which of course is, has amazing, amazing people that came out of it, I probably would have been in class with all the Steppenwolf people. And I was, who knows who I would have been divorced <laughs> from by now. But at any rate, uh, I they're just fantastic actors. And I, I know them, but I wasn't in their class. Anyway, uh, I met Michael um, and it took several years for this to develop into what it did. But I met first met him between my junior and senior year in college. Am I, is everybody asleep now? I hope. Not at all, not at all. Um, um, but I was asked by Charlie Hayde, who you might remember from Hill Street Blues. Yes played Renko. He was an alum of Carnegie Mellon and he came back to direct a show there. Um, and I wasn't, House of Blue Leaves, I think he directed. I was in uh, a Brecht, like new musical based on a Brecht play, Jungle of the City. So I wasn't in his show, but I he liked me. He knew I could sing because I was singing the lead in that. And he asked a couple of us to come um, 
from Carnegie Mellon to be in a show. He was directing at Arena Stage in Washington, D.C., uh, which is an amazing place and has been for decades and decades, uh, a musical of Horatio about Horatio Alger Jr. So I did that for the summer on an equity contract. Yay. And, um, and during that time I worked, uh, I was understudying the lead and the woman who's understudying the second lead, uh, became, we became friends. And at that time, her boyfriend was a guy named Mike Genovese. And so I knew him sort of peripherally. I didn't know him that well. I think he thought I was a little crazy. We've talked about that many times. But um, uh, at any rate, um, that's when we first met. And then I went back to visit a couple of times to visit her and didn't know him that much better. I mostly was there to visit her. And then I lost track of her and him consequently um i didn't know what happened it turned out that they had they had parted ways and she'd gone to new york and he'd gone i guess to chicago uh but then i kept running into him everywhere i worked in regional theater so we our friendship developed in this very slow way where we got to know each other and then we were we were you know casual friends then better friends then uh, Michael and an actor by the, you may be familiar with by the name of John Cothran, who still works a lot as well. Wonderful actor. Mm -hmm. We're working uh, in uh, in regional theater in the Midwest, and we became like running buddies. We were like the Three Musketeers, right? And we would judge, you know, who somebody was dating. It was like that sort of like we were each other's wing man slash woman, whatever. Uh, but <laughs> but it kind of it it just the French have developed, needless to say, until there was nothing left to do but get married. And that's what we did. I'm taking a breath now and a sip of coffee. So <laughs> you're fine. You're perfectly fine. Um you did get uh was your first TV or on screen job uh the romance theater? No. And this is something I have to talk to IMDb about because this happened came up in another interview I did recently where I've never heard of romance theater. I have no idea what it is. And, and this interviewer said, I've had two other people say that they have no idea where it came from. I think they just grabbed a bunch of names and put something up on IMDb. I have no idea what that is. I've never done it. This happened to me once before when I was supposed to have appeared in something by the name of Len Crawford. And it took me forever to say, no, it was, I don't know why we should take it off. Well, how about I don't know what it is? And I was never Len Crawford. But anyway, so now I'm going to have to go through that process again and say, I don't. You, you are my sixth guest and you are the third person who has had, to, had an issue with IMDb. Really? That's why I, that's yeah. why I learned to ask instead <laughs> of assuming because yeah, like, there's a lot tell me of about romance music. theater. And I was like, <laughs> I, and I hadn't looked at my IMDb as as recently as I should have apparently. And I went, I was like a deer in the headlights. And am I forgetting some <laughs> lovely job that somebody gave me, and I'm insulting somebody? But you know, well, you'll be happy to know Google couldn't find anything on you and mystery romance theater. Yeah, <laughs> there's a reason for that. <laughs> well, I do know that you're on many TV shows during the 80s. You're on Three's Company, Murder, She Wrote, Dynasty, and so many more. Yeah. What was that like being on such iconic shows? I know they weren't iconic at the time, 
but I know they I mean, were. I mean, Three's Company certainly was. Um, uh, my very first uh, show, well, funny, my, my first job in LA was a film called Stitches. And it was kind of an animal house goes to medical school thing. And I didn't, however, I didn't play a nurse or anything. I played, uh, Eddie Albert was the head of the school and I was his secretary, though I never met him because our our scenes were on the phone. And so we didn't shoot the same day, but, <laughs> but uh, I was one of his, but at any rate, um, I was just kind of very uptight um, secretary that had a crush on one of the students. Because um, at that time I wasn't that much older than those students, if at all. Um, and uh, it's very funny because the director of that, who, I don't know if you know this, but if it, if something's going wrong with, a film in some ways, um, a director says it's directed by uh, Alan Smithy. They can take their name off and replace. So if you see it, something is directed by Alan Smithy, you know there was a dispute with the director. And so Stitches wow. was directed by Alan Smithy, but it turns out that that same director later on directed the pilot of ER, Rod Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, it was, it was great because I got I came to L.A. and got the job within 24 hours. So that was nice. Um, but I did Newhart and my my father and mother were such huge fans of Bob Newhart. I grew up on his records. So that was a thrill. Um, Bob Newhart was great. I mean, yeah. I believe so, he made an appearance in ER, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, he did. Yeah, he did. And uh, I just such a fabulous, fabulous talent so did you get to meet but, any of those stars or celebrities like from three's company or dynasty oh yeah or? because especially when you're doing those three camera shows like new heart and three's company um you rehearse it like a play i mean you and you're doing it in front of a live audience uh night court those sorts of things so you right. it's not like you're called in a different day you're rehearsing for a week you're they're rewriting you're you're doing it uh you know and then you do at least two shows in front of a live audience. And, and so, you know, you do actually work with the people and that's a thrill. And, and uh, particularly in Three's Company, I worked very specifically with John Ritter because I was Sabbath. That was, it was the episode where he dresses and drag as grandma Tripper to win a cooking contest. Yes, I remember and that one. I'm the really, really horrible, bitchy woman who's undermining him at every turn, uh, you know, knocking his, ingredients off and stepping on them uh my mother always liked to say my daughter stepped on john ritter's nuts i mean she was actually very <laughs> she thought that was very funny and um and uh just to watch him work was fabulous and he was such a generous and special person he's one of those people you just breaks your heart to lose as early as we did uh both as a performer and as a person um, I heard that they were one time talking to his son about taking that role to redo Dries mm, Company. I don't, oh, I don't know okay. if that yeah. went anywhere, but yeah, it's been it's, a couple of years. It's hard to, well, I guess it's hard for me sometimes to see a show recreated because it's so iconic to me. But if it's brand new to you and that's who the audience is, right? Why not? Uh, but I think, yeah, John was quite special. Michael, my husband had worked with him uh, actually on stage in a um, arena stage. 
he's such uh, a was such a physical comedian. Uh, yeah, and this was a, this was a very serious drama. It was a Eugene O'Neill play. Uh, wow. Um, so he was also a, quite a wonderful actor in serious well, things. I he think he was in it, drama. wasn't he? Oh, probably. I he I know you're serious roles. you're a horror fan. I saw that yes. that's interview. Yes, I am. (laughs) I'm going to make a couple of suggestions to you uh, of some international things that I that I that I dubbed English into that were really, I think, quite well, since we're talking to movies, I'll go ahead and jump ahead. We'll come back to ER. I actually I'm not going to lie. I hadn't seen the movie that you were in. um, The Man from Earth. Oh, yeah. I watched it this weekend. That was a crazy, insane movie. Yeah, yeah, I it's mean, a cult hit. Actually, it's a little, it makes you it's a little scratch movie your head. <laughs> yeah, it makes you scratch your head about hey, that it's, was a bit controversial. <laughs> Could have been. Yeah, yeah, it is, and very dense. And um, the writing was great. I didn't see who wrote it, but that was—I mean, it was great. Oh, well, now this is is something special because it was written. um, uh, um, It was written on the deathbed of. um, Oh, my gosh. Oh, this is horrible. All of a sudden, I I need more coffee. Um, I'll think of it in a second. He was a really famous writer. He wrote the, uh, you know, the episode where uh, in. Twilight Zone iconic episode where the little boy wishes people into the corn. Billy Moomy wishes. Oh yes. Uh, mirror mirror episode of uh, of um, of Star Trek. He was quite uh, uh, Bixby. Um, he was an amazing writer, and he wrote this this script on his deathbed really and his son Emerson Jerome Bixby his son Emerson Bixby decided it was his mission to produce it and uh and it it's very funny because it was a very you know this tiny little movie the little movie that could with wonderful actors in it wonderful huge it, actors yourself I mean many others it it became this I mean you're you well you're a horror fan Tony Todd obviously um, yes no uh, candy man <laughs> exactly I mean, you can't get much bigger than that in horror no. and, um, and these fantastic actors but it, it it is has this kind of no exit feel if you know that play by Sartre where you're it's people in a room really talking about ideas and philosophy and having re- a revelation uh, revelations about uh, each other and about what might be true about the universe. Um, and it, it left some, you wondering. It yeah, left you wondering. Some, and there are, uh, but it became this kind of cult film of people that discovered it and it's gone on and on. They even did a sequel, uh, which wasn't as successful, but there is a certain people who enjoy that genre were fascinated by it. I had a lot of comments because my character was. Uh, um, you were freaked the heck out. <laughs> yeah, I was more conservative um, from a Your religious soul. point. Yeah, and um, and I had people say, "Oh, thank you for for representing my point of view," because there are um, mm-hmm. a lot of different points of view, and um, 
I mean, I was just playing the character like I, you know, saw her and and how what she was feeling. But I I'm very I proud. Phenomenal. Of yeah. To check that out. The Man from Earth, if you have. And it may or may not be. Definitely. A cup of tea, but I got to say, if it is your cup of tea, I think you'll really enjoy it. And I really don't see how they could have done a sequel. I mean, how much bigger of a person could the lead actor portray than Jesus? Well, yeah. Well, it, it's. I mean, I'm not trying to ruin the movie. It's no, no, what happened at the he, end, but that's kind of he how goes he somewhere else and has some other students, and then there are flashbacks. Oh, okay. To, to the first movie, and anyway, so um, you can check out both movies, but at least check out uh, the Man from Earth, which you can still find. And there's For another. Sure. See, this is the thing about independent films that I love because you can do some really wonderful work with very special people. I was asked to do a film called Angel's Perch. I don't know if you got a chance to watch Angel's Perch. I haven't yet. I will. But it's uh, it was written, I got this call, Michael and I were doing this, kind of this theater tour one year where we, we did, um, I think that was the year we did we we've done shows up in Maine at the public theater in Maine, uh, Lewiston, Maine. And, and we had done a show there. It, it might've been on golden pond, but it might've been the cocktail hour. I'm trying to remember, but then we came down to North Carolina to do a couple of shows uh, there. And on the way back, we decided to do driving thing. And on the way back, we were going to drive to St. Louis uh, to um, a kind of family gathering in honor of his, mother, my mother-in-law, who had died of Alzheimer's. And I get terrible this disease. Call. I get terrible, terrible disease. And I, I get this call uh, from these people out of the blue that I've never met asking me if I would play this role. Uh, of, um, And they send me the script and it's the caregiver, like nurse caregiver for this woman with Alzheimer's. And I, they had... Wow. They had no idea I had any real connection, real connection with that disease. They just, I guess, liked my work. And so I said, yes, please. I really liked the script. It was written kind of as an homage by, um, by the filmmaker for his grandmother who, uh, in, who lived in West Virginia. And, um, and we actually wound up shooting it in West Virginia in her home because she lived in. Oh, wow. It was an old kind of um, company town and they had those old company houses, you know, and she lived in one of those. And uh, Joyce Van Patten played uh, his grandmother. And uh, it's a very touching, I think, very successful film, lovely film. But it also still has a life. Uh, you can still. I will check that out for sure. Everybody it, else you can stream too. it. You can, you know, rent it. But um but it's a lovely film too. And I love doing those kinds of projects because sometimes they lead you to roles that you wouldn't necessarily do if it's in a big A-list picture, you know, where, you know, you might not be the person that they consider box office for that role. <laughs> right. Well, I'm going to jump back to 1994 when you landed your role as nurse Lydia Wright. Okay. I get shot if I don't cover ER. <laughs> that was yeah. such a huge part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty iconic. Uh, what was your audition like for that? Well, uh, originally, uh, because uh, I knew John Wells, the executive producer. Uh, in fact, he went to Carnegie Mellon. Uh, we served on 
West Coast Drama Alumni Board for a while. Um, but um, but at any rate, I, I and I knew John Levy, the casting director, knew my work, knew my husband's work. And they had it in their head that it would be really fun. There was a couple in the um, in the script that was, uh, he was a, a policeman and she accidentally shot him in the foot, his wife, and they figured they would be recurring characters as kind of what they call frequent flyers. And they thought it would be really fun because they knew we were a couple if we did those roles. But Michael, uh, who had done a, I don't know if you watched the old show, old version of Quantum Leap, which is a fantastic show. Oh, yes. uh, but most people did one episode of Quantum Leap because you were like in one part of history. But in the finale, um, Donald Belisario invited all his favorites uh, back to do the finale. And Michael was one of those. And he offered him straight out um, a role in a new pilot called Crowfoot that was shooting in Maui. That's oh, a nice. <laughs> and so he had just gone to shoot, was going to go shoot that. So he was unavailable to audition. But I read the script, and this is the important thing. If you if you can read the script, it's great because you can't always get a hold of it, but if you can, it really helps. I read the script and I went, ooh, I like this Lydia character. You know, <laughs> um, I think I could do this role. And so I came into my audition. I said, ah, I'll be happy to read for this other role. But I said, you know, uh, I explained why Michael was unavailable. And I said, I kind of looked at this role in Lydia. Might I get an audition? They went, what a good idea. And so I read for that. And the uh, associate casting director came running down after me and said, I think you're going to hear something very soon. <laughs> and so I was cast. So similar with what uh, happened with Yvette, I think they kind of went, yeah, that's, that makes sense. And, um, and that's how I was cast. And by the way, we'll have to get Michael on here one of these episodes too. But oh, okay. Okay. For yeah. sure. Oh, he's got yeah. lots uh, in the action film category and all that. And he, he yeah, he's, he's had. I just love listening. I mean, I have questions, <laughs> but I would rather just listen. <laughs> well, being a motor well, mouth, I guess this must be your lucky. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like working with so many stars like George Clooney, Michael Ironside, Sally Fields? Oh, you know, they're fantastic actors. And George, I got to say, George is who you think he is. I mean, he really is that guy. He's, He's down here. here. He's a He's a Kentucky boy. Come on. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. I know. Right. Midwestern boy. Um, and he, um, you know, he's very genuine. He has the same. He's very loyal to, in friendships. He was a really great uh, leader as far as if the company needed support in any way. Um, and he's desperately funny all the time he's as i know everybody's heard legions of stories about what a jokester he is and he is not afraid to play practical jokes and everyone and anyone at any time <laughs> i mean he is the master of the the uh he would i mean one time he even he had, he had fun for days with a whoopee cushion that he had a, a control on he, you know remote control uh, just you know crazy surgery lube when you answer the telephone all the time i mean it was everything um 
coffee cups and finally a phone on the train of my wedding dress. You know, I mean, he, <laughs> he's that guy and, um, and he's very genuine. And I also admire that when he supports ideas or uh, a cause that he actually does something about it. He doesn't just use it for publicity. He actually works he just, not only in front of the camera, but behind the camera. Right. He just open, uh, appeared for an opening, didn't he? Probably. I mean, he's always appearing. I mean, it wasn't a movie. It was for a, a charity, one of his yeah. charities. And But I mean, he, was, he, is, he has made real differences in the world in his in, in the way he invests in the, and in his ideas so and next i did you talk person. to him tell, next time you talk to him tell him i've been emailing all his people okay <laughs> <laughs> I, I i gotta say i yeah i i don't hang out with george a lot he's been, <laughs> I'm sure. been like como and but i did get to work with him again a, a few years i everybody says a couple of years ago then you remember the pandemic right you go say right. plus three but um but I did get to do Suburbicon with him, however, briefly. I auditioned for it and, and the casting director said, George was so happy to see you. And he so, because at that time we were sending in, you know, she was taping us, said he wants to find a place for you somewhere. So he did. I mean, it's very brief, but it was fun. And I and I was trying to give him some space because I, I worked with him as an actor, but I never worked with him as director. And you want to give him some space. You know, you don't know what his process is. Right. Well, hello, Dory. My little dog is saying hello to me. Um, and uh, so, you know, I get in the van to go to the set and it's just regular old goofy George. He meets me at the van and goes, well, hello, how are you? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like right back there. He's talking the whole bus full of people. It's who George is. So the first time I met him, um, we were walking into... Um, we had before we started the pilot some medical instruction on how to what things meant, how to handle equipment, things like that. And I actually, I I guess I I guess I didn't know really who he was. I I mean he had he was like this millionaire with lots of failed pilots, but he had been on I know Roseanne, and he had been on. Uh, uh, Give me a break and all, all those facts of life. Facts yes. of life. Uh, and so he worked all the time, but I didn't really know him. And he was just this nice guy. We're like walking in, getting to know each other and stuff. And and um, and I thought, what a nice guy, you know. Um, but it was funny because he has. I sort of uh, feeling about him. I didn't think of him as like this movie idol, right? Or as this TV idol. And so when I overheard them talking about uh, casting and uh, they were casting the last role, I think that was cast maybe. But I know they were seeing people for it. And I know they said, well, he was very um, good, but they say, you know, they really want, um, I overheard them saying they really want a hunk. And I remember them saying, oh, but well, we already have a hunk as far as that goes. And it was like, and in my head, this is so funny to remember now because he is like the ultimate in the sexiest man alive, right? I went, right. ooh, because George was so down to earth, despite the fact he was, he was devastatingly handsome and charming, he was 
that nice guy, George. I mean, I didn't think of him as the movie idol, right? Which is to his credit, because he is, no one can deny he's gorgeous and always has been. But he's that kind of a guy. So anyway. You made a question that came into my head that I've always wondered about ER, and this is my chance to ask, maybe you'll know. Um, when it first started out, wasn't it supposed to be based around Anthony Edwards' character? Or was it about everybody? Because after he- I think it was more of an ensemble piece. It was written as a screenplay. Because it seemed halfway through after he left, it went to Carter. Yeah. I mean, that's what they do. Television kind of does that and it sorts out who are going to be the, who's going to run the story. All we had right. in the beginning, uh, well, I'm sure they had written more scripts for that after that, but what John Wells had to work with was a screenplay um, and and those characters, like the nurses, even in the original screenplay, were like nurse one, nurse two, nurse three. We didn't even have names. Right. The only one was Juliana's character. Uh, and as I think Yvette told you in her interview, yeah, I listened in because she's, she's not- I love that you are still friends. I love that. Oh, oh yeah. Well, well, we were together last night. We we're like really super close, like, more like sisters, you know, and best friends, but, um, and, um, but Juliana's character, uh, Hathaway died in the film script. She died from her suicide attempt. So she tested so well. Um, and at that time, Steven Spielberg, I don't know if you know, this was one of the producers as well. Yes. Um, but he, she tested so well, they were like, we we got we got to figure out a way to keep her in. So the, all the scenes that were shot where um, indicating brain damage had to be reshot, um, wow. so that it wasn't certain that she had to die, so she could come back for the first episode after the pilot. Well, I won't say she carried the show, but that would have made a mistake. They would have made a mistake oh. if they killed that character off. Oh for yeah, sure. she, and she's such a beautiful woman terrific actress and and created such a that's such another one i would character. love to sit down and talk with i mean mm -hmm. i love all her work good wife uh you know everything she's done <laughs> and very smart about about continuing her career you know i mean i i know she got a lot of flack when from some people when she left the show but you know she first of all she fulfilled her contract uh but even if she hadn't you know i mean it, it's she she was very smart about okay i am not going to just play this character now and i remember she went and she did a film with andy garcia and she did you know she built her her careers for longevity which is what you really want to do well some actors when they're in a row for so long they kind of get typecast yeah, you can get stuck. That's not something that's not good for any actor or actress. Right, right, right. Um, so I guess I'll jump on to Days of Our Lives. Your most ah. recent little jaunt. Uh, you played a nun. I played mother. Which coincidentally I found out there in my research. It's not the first time you've played a nun. <laughs> no, I was on Broadway <laughs> playing the world's oldest living nun, literally 104 years old, four feet tall and getting shorter every day. Yes. Um, yeah, that when I was on Broadway, it was a, it was a show called Do Black Patent Leather Shoes Really Reflect Up? 
Um, and uh, so, yeah, I had played many nuns, uh, House of Blue Leaves. I, I played a lot of nuns. I played a nun on Mr. Belvedere, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but um, well, maybe the sound of music needs to look towards casting you on Broadway with them as Mother Superior. Yeah. Sound of Music was when I was a chorus girl during college, when I was working at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera. That's the only time I did Sound of Music. But uh, but I can still, we went to see a production and under my breath, I was singing the opening alto part because I could still remember it. Um, but it was, it was the first time I'd ever done a soap opera, weirdly, in all my career. And it was a really unique experience. And uh, I, I really enjoyed it. It was, it's a bit of a white knuckle ride if you've never done it before, uh, but it it's because it, it moves so fast. I was walking in, uh, yeah, and I played this mother superior and I primarily worked with, um, well, solely worked with uh, Mary Beth Evans and Stephen Nichols and Stacey Heideck and, and those three were kind of my scene partners in my episodes, uh, all my episodes, because um, we were off in Italy somewhere away from everybody else. Uh, but Mary Beth, who's of course been on the show since she was in her twenties, uh, turned to me on the way in and she, they were so lovely. I got to say, everyone was so, so welcoming and, and lovely to me. And Mary Beth turned to me and she said, so have you, uh, when we're walking to rehearse the scene, she said, so have you ever done a soap before? I said, no. She said, it's like being shot out of a cannon. <laughs> and she was right. I mean, because you kind of get to a different part of the scene when you're blocking it. It's like you work very, very fast and they might change it. And they might, after you rehearse it, give you a completely different direction and you don't rehearse it that way. You just do it when you shoot it and they're shooting. And daytime, they don't like doing more than one take. <laughs> they don't usually, I mean, they, they might pick it up somewhere, but they pretty much, you do it. You have to come prepared and, and say, if, uh, you get the script late, you might not have a lot of time to look at it. Um, that can happen because <laughs> it's very complicated. <clears throat> and so uh, I was just frankly, really pleased and proud of, of myself that I could keep up. I mean, I did keep up <laughs> and uh, and had it fun and they everybody seemed very pleased and, um, and it was nice to hear. I think it was Mary Beth who said, Oh, it's just so nice to work. It's always nice to work with people who really know what they're doing. And I'm like, oh god, I'm <laughs> all right. But she and Stephen and, and Stacy just couldn't have been more helpful and and so much fun to work with. Really. So, what do you think of uh, acting now compared to the '80s or '90s? So much has changed, especially during the pandemic and everything. Yeah, well, the pandemic changed everything, didn't it? Um, yes. But I'll tell you something in general. I mean, obviously, the shows have kind of changed. And, and um, hmm, how's it changed? It's changed as an industry because we used to have like meet and greets. We would go and have meetings with people. We would... Uh, of course, now almost everything is done by self-tape and, and you might meet with someone on Zoom for a callback, uh, but primarily in television, you're sending your stuff. They already kind of know your work by and large and ask you to send in the scene and they may or may not cast you. Uh, and that doesn't 
you can't take that personally because that has to do with so many factors of what they need and who's playing your daughter and, and what the balance of the cast is and uh, all so many things. Uh, so you just enjoy playing the scene when you get to do it for that one day and hope you can play it again. But if you don't move it on, uh, but it's, it's different in that way because you used to really have more in-person meetings Um there weren't people sending in auditions from all over the country, which is great for having been a person who got my all of my uh, three union cards in Chicago, actually. Um, that's great for talent. There's talent everywhere. And it's good that it should be recognized and used. Um, but it's changed in that way. Uh, it's changed significantly for me, simply because as you get older, there are frankly fewer roles and uh, a lot fewer roles. And that what that means is that the major stars are also looking for work. I remember one season where there were all of these amazing uh, female lead television series. This was, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. And they were like, isn't this fabulous that these women, older women have these series and I said, those older women have series because there's no movie jobs for them. <laughs> and, and they're big stars and they know they'll, you know, and they're fantastic performers and actors. But uh, it really does change for, I would say, everyone, unless you're Meryl Streep, frankly, or somebody like that. Um, and, uh, it's, it's tougher. There are fewer roles, but you keep going. And you also, this is something as a performer, since I've been, I've only been acting my whole life. I really don't do anything else. Uh, um, I mean, I can write a little bit, but I, and I direct it a little bit, but what I mean is that you, you have to morph along with the industry. You also have to learn new tricks for your bag of tricks. You know, you, um, okay, it's a little light here in television. So I, you know, you're, you're always, putting out feelers for everything, right? I mean, God bless Prolia has been this wonderful, they were very, very good to me. I did this commercial with this terrific commercial director that I'd worked with before. And it's turned into um, something that's been very helpful for me. Uh, that commercial has been running since before the pandemic. And, uh, and I'm happy to say that my friends who are actually on that, have had no bad side effects. So I feel better about that. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, that, that would be a concern endorsing or not really endorsing, but doing a commercial for a company like that, that'd be kind of. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and, you know, I mean, when you look at, at some of these things with side effects, I go, I would never take that. That's terrifying. <laughs> you know, not, <laughs> right. really, but I, I saw one the other day and it was like, well, for a sleeping thing that said, well, you may, uh, make sure you're awake because there have been instances when people were driving, they didn't realize they were driving. And I was like, I don't want that. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, I felt good about that. And, um, and I'm not meaning to do a plug for my, it's just, no, no. that's, that's something. And also what was wonderful through, oh, and I had a, a beer commercial that I shot right before the pandemic that helped. But uh, throughout the pandemic, before the pandemic, I started doing a job, which is really kind of like a playground. It's, 
it's really fun. Um, and it keeps your chops up. It's creative and you get to watch fantastic performances by international actors. And that is English dubbing for international projects for Netflix, Amazon, Disney, etc. And um, I started doing, um, I, I started doing that. What, what was happening was that they realized as people were watching more and more content, over 80% of Americans really don't want to read subtitles. They want to see dubbing. But uh, a show, for example, like Money Heist, which is the first one I worked on, was very popular in Europe and in Asia, but they found that they weren't watching it in the United States. And what they decided was, let's maybe we need to hire at real actors, actor actors that normally are appearing in front of the camera and hire real directors, real filmmakers to direct them. And they did that with Money Heist. All of a sudden it was a huge hit in the United States. They redid the dub of the pilot and started dubbing with those actors. And, and it was very successful. And they, I have to say, I enjoy it so much. Uh, you go in and you get to watch these extraordinary performances by other artists and try your best to do them justice. So it's right. real acting that uh, you mo frequently, most of the time, don't even know what you're going to be doing when you go in there. So you have to stay loose and you, you learn, you really broaden your international scope of the actors, you know, and the projects, you know, and you feel kind of like you're a part of opening, of, of introducing that to a group of people who otherwise would not watch it. So, so my horror, my, you got to watch this horror series I did, which was, I think, the second project I did, which was a French project called Marianne. It's terrifying French series called Marianne. So watch that. It down. Yeah. Uh, doing voiceover should be, I would think that they would want you, people like you, because you've got a very distinguished voice. Uh, you know, if I heard your voice, I would kind of, you know, know who it was. Thank you. Well, it's you know, and I've done other voiceover as well. Um, you know, straight you voiceover. You thought of coaching? You know, when I was first out of college, I worked at a company in St. Louis, which was uh, it's now St. Louis Rep, but at that time was called Loretto Hilton, and I I worked in the company acting company. I taught in um, their conservatory, speech and voice, actually, and I really enjoyed teaching. Um, and I've done some coaching with my husband, uh, occasionally coaching auditions or things like that. But as a regular thing, I I find that when I was teaching, it it was first of all I was single. I was young and single and had my whole life to devote to whatever I was devoting to. So I was working. I was working seven days a week at the time. I was working acting, and I was completely immersed in when I teach and I somebody wanted me to teach when I first came to LA because he was a Carnegie Mellon guy that I he was ahead of me so I had he knew my work more than he knew me and I was just like I I know how much time I spend I've got to figure out my time and by then I was you know had my family and I knew I needed to choose my time and I don't want to teach and not devote everything to it because I know how I am so there might be a time when I teach again and I enjoy it 
uh but i would uh, just say with someone with so much experience because you you've got stage uh you've got movie you've got prime time you've got daytime i mean voiceover but it is where do you i mean you can teach at a university you can teach set up your own thing but that is it's time consuming and actually quite honestly um what i wound up getting very involved in is uh labor uh the labor movement um i'm besides serving for quite some time on the boards of sagaftra um i'm still national organizing chair for sagaftra i represent um california uh the sagaftra and the california labor federation on their executive council and um i'm on uh well President Fran Drescher just put me on her Green Council, which is dealing with trying to eliminate the use of single-use plastic and other green issues. Um, and I've been very involved in the labor movement for some time now and first got involved actually when I was on ER because I was they asked me to show up for some nurses. And I even while at my for about three years when I was on ER, I went out and spoke to groups of nurses across the country, we got invited, Juliana and I, to the, the Emergency Nurses Association of Scientific Assembly. We went down there and, and kind of uh, watched what was going on. And, and, um, and then I kept, she was unavailable the next time in New Orleans. And I went and I started, it, it just happened that I became sort of an advocate, but as a, a layperson, I didn't pretend to be a nurse. It was like, here's here's what we do playing you. And I grew in, I just, my admiration for nurses is just immense. Uh, and too. so I was trying to help push their issues, um, tell them how they can have an influence on how they're uh, portrayed in, in, in uh, television and film. And, and it became very, very rewarding um, because uh, I really can get teary talking about nursing. They, they are amazing human beings. <laughs> and I, I agree. pandemic, I was in touch with actually one of my friends that I met, on, you know, she was a nurse on the set sometimes and she was working the emergency department in LA during the pandemic. And, wow. you know, that's a group that's really quite something. Yes, for sure. I, I sing their praises every opportunity I get on my medical episodes because they do. They're, they're the first people you see and usually the last people you see. And I want to say a big shout out to you. I've been looking through your website and I hope everyone uh, looks at it, it becomes aware, donate if you can. Uh, boy, some of those stories are just they're heartbreaking, they're inspiring, they're all of those things. And uh, I just hope, I hope that number one, people get informed about it. Uh, and, but it's also that thing, right, of, of, of first going in, then making sure that you have the right people dealing with your issues that know what they're talking about. And right. thirdly, making sure you have an advocate. If you can have a friend or family, especially when you're that sick, you need an advocate there and uh, that that you are helping to push that forward. I just want to applaud you and thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for your generous donation. I, I saw oh. it this morning. Oh, very kind. It's very kind. 
and, but and yes, the survivors. I'm a survivor of it, but they caught mine really early, right yeah. out. You know, so I didn't go through what most survivors oh, went God. through. I mean, we've got them who's had it on their face, you know, yeah. oh. all over the body, all ages too. The first time I ever heard about it, we were weirdly waiting for a table in a Chinese restaurant in Spokane, Washington, and this man was picking up delivery, and the guy who worked in the Chinese restaurant, who was a magnificent storyteller, was telling us this whole adventure, that this whole horrific adventure he had had with it. It really is something, and I realized I've gone over my time. I'm uh, been, No, no, don't even worry about that. I'm worried I, about but, taking your time. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I just I just want to say to everybody, please um, go to that website and, and check it and out. And what we're talking about is necrotizing fasciitis, which is also known as the flesh-eating bacteria. You can learn more at www.necfasci.org, N-E-C-F-A-S-C.org. Yep. Thank you so much for being here, Ellen. I hope you'll come back because I've got, didn't even get half my questions. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, because I just talk nonstop. It's just no. I love it. I loved it. I loved it. It was great. Um, if you will hang out backstage for just a moment, I will be back there in just a moment. Surely. Bye, everybody. Thanks for watching. <laughs> I'd like to thank Ellen Crawford for being here today, talking with us. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel if you like. More videos like this will be coming up very soon. Please remember to be kind to one another and have a great day.